Hi! Hey! Welcome to The Cordial Catholic, a podcast for non-Catholics, new Catholics, and those looking to dig deeper into the Catholic faith. I'm K. Albert Little, an evangelical, non-denominational convert to Catholicism, and this podcast is born out of one particular idea. It began for me when a Protestant pastor I was working for asked me the question, what's more important, the Bible or tradition? That led me on a deep dive into the history of Christianity, the history of the canon of the Bible, into the early church, the early church fathers, and into theology and philosophy, and I landed in the ancient Catholic Church. It's inevitable in a study of history, and there it was, looming large. And it was then, when I began to read from Catholics in their own words, what Catholics actually believed, well, I realized that what I thought I knew about Catholicism, what I thought I understood so well, was oftentimes based on misinformation and more often than not on simple misunderstandings. Well, this podcast serves to fill in that same gap. The gap between what you think Catholics believe and what we actually do. Each week, I have a real Catholic conversation with a real Catholic thinker from the heart of the Catholic Church. No misinformation here. And this week's episode is simply fantastic. I'm joined by fellow convert Eric Robinson to talk about the sacraments. He has a number of fantastic books, and one of them is on the sacraments, and we sit down to talk about what the sacraments are, what they do, what Catholics believe about them, and why they are so amazing, so life-changing. This is a great conversation for those who are new to the Catholic faith or who are wondering what Catholics believe about their faith and all these different kinds of things because the sacraments are a complete mystery. They were to me, as an evangelical Christian, a complete mystery to many non-Catholic Christians. It's just not in our vocabulary, but it's absolutely, fundamentally world-changing. It changed my world, my faith life, and Eric's too, and he's here to talk to us about it. It's a great conversation. This conversation and others are brought to you by my patrons at patreon.com slash cordialcatholic. Thank you. Thank you for listening and supporting the show in that way. If you want to go deeper and support this show financially, you can do that at patreon.com slash cordialcatholic. Any support helps this show to keep going and keep growing, and those who give $5 or more a month are entered automatically into free book draws every single month. That's at patreon.com slash cordialcatholic. And thank you for listening. Thanks for your ratings, your reviews. Thanks for telling a friend to listen to if you like it. And thank you to those who are financially underpinning this show too. Thanks, guys. And now, without any further ado, here's my conversation with Eric Robinson on the sacraments. Please listen and enjoy. Hey guys, and welcome back to The Cordial Catholic. Thanks for listening, and welcome. I'm joined this week by Eric Robinson. Eric is a convert to the Catholic faith. He's a Master of Arts in Theology from Holy Apostles College and Seminary. He's a podcaster and YouTuber, the host of Polycarp's Paradigm, a creative entrepreneur, and the author of a number of fantastic books, including Thoughts of a Changed Mind, Letters from Father and Son, Thoughts of a Sacramental Mind, the subject of our conversation today, and out later this month, November 2020, Visible Unity, A Calling of Christ for the Church. 
And Eric, I think this is the first time in the history of this show I've booked a guest. You and I had a conversation and we, we booked this time slot to talk about your second book. And in that meantime, your third book, Visible Unity, is slated to come out. And I already know, just from the title and from your previous work, I want to have you back on the show to talk about that book as soon as possible. So you're the first guest to have a first-time appearance on the show and I think a pretty much guaranteed second appearance as well because that's going to be a fantastic book and a great conversation as well. So welcome to the show for the first time (laughs) and hello. Hello. Listen, I love your stuff. Your books are fantastic. The The format is fantastic. I want to get into the, the, the structure in a second here. Mm-hmm. But I, you're a convert. I'm a convert. Lots of listeners to this program are converts or on that journey or thinking about converting. I, I want to, if you could give us a little kind of thumbnail sketch of your conversion story. And I don't want to, I don't want to already jump the gun and say, I want to have you back for a third time on the show, but I <laughs> wow. think probably even an episode just dealing with your conversion story. Cause those are yes. fantastic episodes. So we'll put that in the back burner for now. This is going to become the Eric Robinson show. I think if we're not wow. too careful, but let's hear about a, a little sketch of your conversion story. If we can to start this conversation. Sure. Yes. I'd love to. Yeah. Like I said, uh, my name is Eric Robinson and I do host, a podcast called Polycarp's Paradigm. And episode three is my conversion story. It's about 50 minutes long, but I'm going to dwindle it down here to like a minute for for you, Keith. (laughs) And uh, basically, I grew up as a non-denominational Baptist-based Christian. I um, was baptized in first grade, actually, with my whole family in the Presbyterian church. But the biggest spiritual influence growing up was summer camp. And in fifth grade, I saw a live skit of the crucifixion at that camp. And that's really when the faith became my own. And I just decided, no, I want to follow Jesus and really got serious about that. Started reading my Bible more, um, was really encouraged to do that, getting uh, good Christian friends in my life. And in college, I was part of some different churches that really they all had the heart to be, become the early church or be like the early church. So the church that we saw in the book of Acts, we wanted to do that. So I was part of some charismatic groups and other such things. Um, I even went to a discipleship training school at a charismatic church in Waco for a little bit. Uh, But it was after that where I started questioning some things. I started asking, well, you know, if, why should I go to church? If it's about someone's sermon, I can listen to that on a podcast. If it's about worship music, I can listen to that. If it's about Christian community, I already have great Christian friends. So why should I go? And in my mind's eye, it flashed the word communion. And I was like, oh, that's weird. Because in my tradition, it was like, Communion doesn't hold the same thing as the Catholic Church. It was just a symbol, and we actually only did it like twice a year uh, in the church that I, was gro- that I grew up going to. And so I was like, that's weird. And so I kind of tucked that in the back of my mind for about a year. Uh, the following year, in 2013, I ran into a friend who was working at the same company that I was working for at the time, and he actually was part of that same charismatic church that I had done to the discipleship training school at. And he was transitioning to becoming, well, he's already transitioned to become Anglican. And then he was exploring the Catholic church. And he said, Hey, Eric, I know your heart burns to be part of the early church, but I think I found it. It still exists. (laughs) I was like, what, (laughs) what does this mean? And he introduced me to the early church fathers. He told me about apostolic succession, all these things. So I started reading the letters of Ignatius of Antioch. I started reading about St. Polycarp, my patron saint. Um, 
And then he got me reading the Catechism of the Catholic Church, which totally destroyed all these prejudices and misconceptions I had. It was so beautiful. And so conversations with him, reading the early church fathers and the catechism itself, those were the three big drivers that eventually led me to become Catholic in 2015 on my 27th birthday at the Easter Vigil that year. And then thanks be to God, this is even more incredible is that a few years later, two years ago, in 2018, both my parents, my mom and my dad became Catholic as well. And so it's just been an amazing journey. And so I just wanted to spread that journey and that faith uh, to the ends of the earth, which is why I started my podcast as well. <laughs> Listen, that's fantastic. And we had the same Catholic birthday, which is fantastic. Easter Vigil 2015. Wow. So uh, we're both five years old, five and a half. That sounds fantastic. I feel much older uh, some days, but that's yeah. awesome. So we're definitely having you back for a follow-up episode to talk about your conversion story and unpack that. And I'll point listeners to your podcast in that episode. Uh, in the meantime... To, to hold them off before we can talk because that's a fantastic yes. story and I, we have a lot in common so that'll be a great conversation. I want to get into your book um, Thoughts of a Sacramental Mind. Can you just first talk about uh, the format of your first two books because I think they're it's a fantastic format. It works really well. I mean, C.S. Lewis did it in Screwtape Letters really well that kind of format of writing a letter type uh, mm -hmm. format. It works, and it makes it so accessible. So can you talk for a second about just that format, maybe why you chose that format or, or kind of how you, you unpack it? Yeah, so my first book uh, was similar format. Um, letter, it's Thoughts of a Changed Mind, Letters from Father to Son. And I wrote that, started writing that in 2015, right before I became Catholic. But at that point, I, I was 100% and I knew I was going to become Catholic. And basically, that book was about Basically, if I were to die tomorrow, here's everything that God has taught me that I would want to pass on to other people. And I thought, okay, there's a lot of complicated ideas in my mind. There's a lot of things going on. How can I communicate this in a way that not only conveys information, but also captures people's hearts? And, and so I thought the letter format was, was a beautiful, beautiful way to do it. So I'm not married and don't have kids yet. And so I, I wrote it, though, as if I was a father to my son. And, and so there was 104 letters that I ended up writing, um, involving that book. So a couple years ago, um, it was about two years ago, actually in 2018, both my nieces who at the time were nine and 10 years old got baptized in their Baptist church. And I thought to myself, you know what, they're not going to receive any actual formation or training as to what baptism does. Cause in their view, it's just a symbol. It doesn't do anything. They don't have sacraments. They don't. I mean, it is a sacrament, but they don't view it that way. And because that's how I grew up. And so I was like, you know, I really want to write them each a letter and share with them and get, ex get them excited for this amazing day, this day of their baptism and convey to them how powerful this is and what's going to happen. You're going to get all your sins washed away. And the Holy Spirit's going to come and dwell in your body. And I was like, this is huge. And so I wrote them each a letter. And then I thought after that, and I had to, of course, give it to their spiritual authority. So I had my sister read through it, and she had me change a few things. But I changed them back in my book. <laughs> um, so that was the inspiration for this book, Thoughts of a Sacramental Mind. But I, I decided to change one of them into a, into a boy and one to a girl um, so that it could, we could have some different interactions there with the book. And so I structured it as letters from father to a daughter and then father to a son and I go through each of the seven sacraments. I also do an introductory letter about what sacraments even are. 
And then I did a concluding letter on uh, devotion to Mary, actually, and why that's so important. And so I structured it this way so that they could still be short, inspiring letters full of like great information as well, um, but that they could also complement one another. So when you read both the letters on baptism, let's say you get a full picture, a more full picture of what baptism actually does. Um, and so that's how it's structured. And so you can see it like there's different aspects, different analogies I use in, to my daughter and I use different analogies to my son and different ways of describing the same sacrament. Um, and so I thought that was pretty unique. And, uh, and the structure itself is something I'm really excited about, actually. Yeah, I think it's fantastic. It's very readable, very accessible. Uh, something with that letter format that I think almost invites somebody uh, into a more intimate space when you read that. It's more than just a textbook on the sacraments. It's inviting you into this kind of space, mm-hmm. this relational aspect, which I think is a great place to be, to, to provide information and to, and to teach and to and, and do an instruct with kind of a love, I don't know, it's more accessible than just reading mm-hmm. a textbook. There's, there's that love underlines this letter and these characters that you're yes. writing to. So it's more intimate. Yeah. And that was my goal is to, is to do that. And so it's a way to convey these powerful and sometimes uncomfortable things that I bring up, like on my letter about marriage, I bring up the hard issues about contraception and stuff. Like I just go for it. And those are hard <laughs> issues to talk about. So if it was just a chapter, it'd be like, I don't know, a little bland maybe, or even it could seem judgmental almost, but in the letter format, it's to my daughter, it's to my son. And it's very intimate. It's very like, oh no, I get it now. It's relational. Like you say. Yeah. I think that's fantastic. Okay. I want to touch on the sacraments kind of in general and go into them in a bit more detail in each sacrament. But I want to start here. I, I have two ideas in my mind, thinking back to my time uh, as an evangelical Christian, I really had two kind of touch points thinking of sacraments on my my conversion journey. And the first was talking to an evangelical friend about becoming Catholic. We had these deep theological conversations, him and I, these very rich conversations. And at one point I was talking about looking into the Catholic Church and and my desire for, for becoming Catholic. And he said, yeah, I, I get the authority thing, but I couldn't live the sacramental life. I just couldn't, I couldn't do it. And at the time, I kind of went, what, like, what's the sacramental life? What's a sacrament? <laughs> I, I had no idea at that time what that even meant. I, you know, I bought into the authority of the Catholic Church, and I was buying into looking at, as you said, the early church and how the Catholic Church kind of resembles this early church. But I hadn't got to the sacraments yet. And so that for me was like, well, what's a sacrament? I, I had no idea. And then I can remember later on in my journey, as I began to read and study, read the catechism like you did, read the early church, read Catholic theologians, uh, you know, about the Catholic church in its own words was huge Mm -hmm. for me, you know, undoing all the kind of misconceptions and misunderstandings that I had. I got to a point where I realized that sacraments made a lot of sense because it was how God kind of always worked. I looked at like Moses and the burning bush, the the Ark of the Covenant, the manna from heaven, all these different things that I realized that God worked in tangible ways. And and why did he stop doing that in my evangelical view of things? It didn't make a lot of sense. And here was the Catholic Church that still held out the idea that no, God still does work in these tangible ways. So realizing that, making that connection for me was hugely influential in then coming to embrace and, and love the sacraments and the sacramental life, which I had no idea what it was originally. Now it makes a lot of sense and I'd be hard pressed to live any other way as a, as a, as a Christian now, I think. So I wonder if we can 
begin by going through kind of an overview of, of what a sacrament is and kind of how that makes sense in, in the scheme of how God does things for us as, as Catholic Christians. Yeah, so a sacrament is a sign and instrument of God's grace. And really, the way I like to think of it, too, is it's an extension of the incarnation. So the incarnation is that God the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so when Jesus ascended into heaven, he didn't just leave. <laughs> He's actually still with us. It, what, that, what, that, what that means, what, what happened in the ascension is that his incarnational presence, his his being with us in the flesh got transcendent. It got extended and it's extended through the sacraments and through the church, the body of Christ. And so these are touch points where we, you know, we're human beings. So we're body and soul unities. And so we have these, we're, we have a body. So we experience things through our senses and then we have souls. We're spiritual and we're unity of body and soul. And so God wants to encounter us in the totality of our being. He doesn't want to just encounter us spiritually. God is spirit, yes, but he became man and dwelt among us. God became uh, man and dwelt among us, the incarnation, because he wants to redeem mankind. So we're not angels, so we don't just relate to God spiritually. And we're not animals. We don't just relate to God materially. We're composite. And so he wants to, like I say, redeem us and encounter us in the totality of our being, physically and spiritually. And so the sacraments are physical means, material means by which we encounter God spiritually. And so, for instance, um, we receive Jesus Christ himself under the appearance of bread and wine. We actually receive that tangibly into us, but it's the totality of Christ's own presence. And so this is an amazing thing that Christ is still with us, God with us, the hope of, you know, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so there are seven sacraments, seven means of grace but they all um, climax and go towards this, the source and summit of the Christian life, which is the most holy Eucharist. And so all the sacraments flow from and go towards the Eucharist, which is Jesus Christ himself. And this is the most remarkable thing, that as a Protestant, I was in love with Jesus. I love Jesus. And then as a Catholic, it's like, oh, he's still here. And I get to experience him in this most intimate way. And so it's interesting that your friend said that he couldn't live the sacramental life. And that's so sad because it's like, that's like getting married, but never engaging in the most intimate physical union you can with your wife, namely the conjugal union. And so it's, and that's how I view it is that this is, it's this supreme sublime form of intimacy that we get to have with God uh, in the Eucharist that he gives his total self to us and we give our total selves to him. And that's what love is that total gift of self. And so these are ways by which we encounter God um, that makes sense with our human nature. I guess the one thing that you said, then we're on the same page here for sure as both evangelical converts, is the idea of this the, the sacraments being the incarnation kind of continued and, and, and lived out. I mean, that's so remarkable to think of it that way because I don't know about you, but for me, certainly, the act of Christ coming down and living and dying on the cross and ascending back to heaven was this transactional thing that had to take place. Like Christ died mm -hmm. for us on the cross. That was kind of the totality of what happened there. We didn't really see anything beyond that happening. I mean, the Holy, he sent the Holy Spirit, of course, to, to dwell in us. We understood that, and I was as well from a charismatic background, so we definitely understood what the Holy Spirit was doing there in a very real sense. This was a real part of our faith life. But there wasn't this sense that, that ex the incarnation extended 
to us or that God wanted to us to say in the Eucharist, consume him to become more like him or deliver himself in any other means other than the cross. That was kind of the end. And then it was like, okay, well next, how you live as, the, as a Christian? Well, you read your Bible and you pray and you go to church and you worship and you, uh, as a charismatic, have these gifts of the spirit and stuff practice regularly in your life. But there was no sense that the incarnation extended beyond anything other than kind of Jesus' time on earth and then the ascension, and that was kind of the end of it. Is that kind of how you saw things as an evangelical? Yeah, it's like, well, that happened back then, and now, you know, he died for me, so I'm I'm free from my sins, and now I can walk in this new life. But I think the, yeah, so it is that transactional mindset versus, I think the number one word to describe the Catholic faith really is participation. Mm. We don't just believe in a transaction, we believe we're called to participate in the life of Christ. And so, you know, the Eucharist, let's say, is, you know, that is making present that sacrifice. And we now, by partaking of the Eucharist, get to participate in the sacrifice of the cross and the resurrection. Baptism, we participate in the death and resurrection of Christ. Um, confirmation, we participate in Pentecost through confirmation. So, we are participating in the life of Christ. When we suffer, we can unite it with Christ's sufferings for the salvation of the world. And, and so that's redemptive suffering. And so this participation, the sacraments allow us to participate in the life of Christ. And that's our dignity. God became man that man might share in the very life of God. That's divinization. That's what that's good news. <laughs> like not only are we saved from sins, so that's great. The transaction's great. But it's not just transactions, transformation that we need. We need transfiguration. And transfiguration happens when we are daily crucified to ourselves and we're filled with the very body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. We partake of his body to become his body. And, and, and we're gradually being molded and formed in the likeness of Christ. And that's a big difference between evangelicalism and Catholicism is that in evangelicalism and really Protestantism, God, God just declares you righteous. He kind of pretends that you're something you're not. He declares you righteous, even though you yourself are still just stuck in sin and all that muck. But in Catholicism, it's no, God just doesn't want to declare you righteous. He wants to make you his righteousness. And he does that through the sacrament of life. And so it's this gradual process of salvation that takes place. Not only are you declared righteous, but you're becoming God's righteousness. And that's a, a lifelong journey. And that's something that we're called to do. And, and we can't do it on our own. So we need grace. And grace isn't just this abstract concept. It's a tangible power of God given to us to sanctify us. That's given through the sacraments. And so that's something that I say is that the sacramental life, in my book I say this, that the sacramental life is the life of grace par excellence. It's the, it's the, it's the life of grace. We need grace. So we need to receive the sacraments so we can receive grace. And then be transformed by that grace into the images and likenesses of Christ. <laughs> Very well said. And I wanted to touch on that grace idea in a second. Yeah. I wanted to kind of contrast, uh, I should say, the evangelical life and the Catholic life. Because for me, and I'm sure for you too, we became, you know, we became Christian and you, you were baptized most likely. Um, we didn't believe that, that was connected to our salvation necessarily or, or saved us. Mm-hmm. It was kind of more of a thing. We'll get into more of that maybe in baptism in, in a minute. But we became Christian and we began living a Christian life. And we, I, I don't know, I would pray, read my Bible, go to church, uh, listen to worship music, go to church again, sometimes several times a week. And we do these things to try and become more holy. 
more like Christ. We saw that mm-hmm. there's importance there in becoming more like Jesus. But the means to do that was kind of nebulous. It was kind of this hard-to-define thing of how we actually were meant to become more like Christ. Whereas, as a Catholic, I'm sure you agree with this too, there are clear means, clear things we can do, and it's in these sacraments where we're given this this grace to become more like Christ. And as you said, we're participating in that. Like you know, we in fact we we consume Christ in the Eucharist to become more like Him. It's kind of the the, the very basic way of of becoming something is to consume that thing into your into your life, like physically and and spiritually. Uh, there, there's such a contrast there, and I can see a pushback happening. Um, and I was certainly pushed back against this as an evangelical. This idea of grace kind of being metered out in these sacraments. Do you want to unpack that a bit more? Because I, I can easily see, and I'm sure you felt the same way too. If you get this idea of well, you you receive grace from the sacraments. It sounds like I am having to do something to be Catholic. I'm having, like I'm, I'm earning my earning this grace by jumping through this hoop, for example. Um, mm-hmm. At the same time, as an evangelical, I experienced this. Grace is this kind of hard to pin down or define thing. And and am I receiving some? Like, do I have enough? Is God really mm-hmm. giving me this grace? There is that kind of unknown factor to it as an evangelical. So there's a lot there I've kind of dumped on your plate. Can you Thank make you. sense of that at all? <laughs> yeah. So I think one of the helpful things for me was when I became Catholic or was preparing for my confirmation um, at the Easter Vigil of 2015 that we both enjoyed, um, is my priest said, when you go up to receive the Eucharist for the first time, you do not take the Eucharist. You receive the Eucharist. This is grace. You don't take grace. You don't earn grace. You're receiving grace. And there's that posture of reception. So never have I partaken of the Eucharist since becoming Catholic where I ever felt like, oh, I really earned that. Or, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm taking the Eucharist. I'm taking Jesus. You know, it's, it's no, it's I'm receiving this gift. Yes, I have to receive it. It's just like a gift on Christmas. You know, it's like you have to unpack it and you get to enjoy it. If you don't do that, then you don't actually receive it. And so, yes, you have to do something in the sense of you have to receive, but that's not like earning. Um, And so there's a totally different concept there. But then, yes, you do have to, once you receive the grace, this gift, it's your dignity to do something with it. And so this is what Ephesians talks about, right? For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, lest any man should boast. For we are God's workmanship, creating Christ Jesus for good works. And so we receive the grace. How do we do it? Through the sacraments. So it's like for by grace, you've been saved. So we're saved through the sacraments. We receive the grace through the sacraments. We enter into the sacramental life through faith. So receiving grace through faith. And then this is to produce a good work in us. And so that grace enables us to now cooperate with that grace and actually produce the good works that are meritorious that go for our heavenly rewards and all of that. Salvation itself is a process. It's not just a transaction. So for instance, the process of salvation ends when we all received our resurrected, when we all receive our resurrected bodies at the end of time, that's like the end game. Eternal life as defined in the scriptures, is to know God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. To know God, that intimate knowing of God, is not just a transaction. It is a process. It's a lifelong process. Just as you and your wife, Keith, 
it's not just like, oh, we did the ceremony of marriage. Now we're done. No, that was the beginning. That was the beginning. And, and so we receive eternal life now through baptism, where we die with Christ, we're raised with Christ, and we enter into that reality by faith, either the faith of the church or our own faith, but one day it has to become our own. And so that begins the, the salvation process. And so, yes, grace isn't just this abstract concept. It's also not just restricted to the sacraments per se. In the catechism, it says that God has bound salvation to the sacraments, but he himself is not bound by the sacraments. He can work outside of these normal means of grace. You know, you could say that reading the scripture, that's a means of grace. You could say that prayer is a means of grace. There's all sorts of worship music, a means of grace. So there are means of grace even outside the visible walls of the Catholic Church, you could say. All of those flow, of course, from Jesus Christ, who is present in the Eucharist. So once again, all of that is a magnetic pull towards the Eucharist. Um, but grace, fortunately, isn't abstract. And grace himself came to us in the flesh, Jesus Christ, and he still is with us through the sacraments. And that's the beauty of it. And so there's a false dichotomy that is set up between grace and sacraments. But that's silly because the sacraments are our means of grace. It's, by, it's the way we receive grace. And, and so it's the way we, we encounter God. Um, and so there is no false dichotomy. Another line that I put in my book on purpose, because there's another false dichotomy, and this kind of touches on what you're talking about, is oftentimes you'll hear in evangelical circles, you know, I don't need to go to confession. I don't need to go to a priest for confession. The veil is torn. I don't need to receive these sacraments. The veil is torn. So when Jesus died on the cross, the veil in the temple is torn. So the, I guess, insinuation is that because of that, I myself can just connect with God. I don't need anything else. Well, that's not, that's not, that's not what's going on there. What's going on there is that now God is entering into our time and space in a whole new way. So where through the death of Christ, we get to have eternal life. We get to know him more. The veil is torn so that now, instead of just this abstract concept of God, that's this distant God that only relate to spiritually. No, he became man and dwelt among us. The veil is torn in this sense that now the Eucharist, Jesus Christ himself, we get to receive him. So we get to receive the most intimate encounter with God possible. It's not just reserved for that high priest in the Old Testament. Everyone gets to receive the Eucharist if they so choose to enter. Um, and so that's what's beautiful is that the sacramental life, these encounters with God who is still with us, is the life of the veil torn par excellence. It's the perfect life of the veil torn. Because guess what? Every time I go to Mass and receive the Eucharist, I'm encountering God in the fullness of his divinity and humanity in the Eucharist. And that's mind-blowing. When I go to talk to a priest, when I go to see a priest for confession, I receive absolution. I'm actually hearing the words of Jesus Christ speaking to me. I absolve you of your sins. That's Jesus speaking to me through the lips of the priest. The veil has been torn. And so now I encounter him through the body of Christ, the church. <laughs> well said. And I think the one remarkable thing for me as a convert encountering the sacrament, something like the Eucharist, say, for example, is there's, there's such a reassurance in knowing that even if I feel nothing, I'm feeling lousy, I'm not feeling mm. good, I don't, I don't want to be there maybe on a Sunday, uh, I still pull my butt out there and I get out to Mass, that is 
Eucharist, the, the graces in that sacrament are still effective. No matter what the priest is up to, as long as he says Mass the, the proper way, no matter what I'm feeling or I'm up to, you know, versus the experience of especially a charismatic evangelical denomination, where if I don't feel ramped up and like the Spirit's flowing through me, well, I should just go home now because I'm doing something wrong and it's not, mm. not going to happen. There's such a difference between that experience and the experience of knowing that the, the grace in the sacrament is there regardless of how I feel about it. And I can trust that even if I don't feel great, like I'm receiving something powerful, even if I don't have that feeling, I can trust that I've received that grace and it's done something to me, right? Mm, exactly. And, you know, I've, I've gone to some masses where, man, the music was terrible. <laughs> but I walked out of mass and someone asked me after one such situation, how was mass? And I was like, actually, it was awesome because I just received the body, blood, soul, and divinity. <laughs> I'm pretty good. You know, like I'm doing well, like the music was terrible, but I still received Christ and this is amazing. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's an objective thing. So that's something too, that like I had to explain to a friend is, you know, when I say in my book that the Eucharist, let's say, I say the Eucharist is the um, most sublime form of intimacy possible with Christ on this side of heaven. Well, I mean that in the objective sense, not subjectively necessarily. So, objectively, um, the sexual embrace for a married couple is the most intimate form of physical union. That's just objectively true. But subjectively, you might actually feel more connected with your wife, uh, let's say, by just holding her hand on a rocking chair one day, then maybe you just feel that intimacy. So subjectively, you feel it more. And so there's po it's possible that you feel more intimate with God in other ways sometimes. But objectively speaking, that is the most supreme form of intimacy because it's the total gift of himself to the total gift of ourselves. Um, now, the best is when those match up. And so I love it because the objective reality, the more you contemplate that, the more you enter into that through faith, the more subjectively, the more you can actually feel it, the more you can enter into it emotionally. Um, it doesn't change the objective reality but it allows you to enter into it sometimes more fully. <laughs> That's fantastic. Okay, let's go through the sacraments a little bit here. I don't know where you want to start, what, what makes the most sense for you in yeah. terms of how to unpack them, but let's go through some, some of the sacraments and kind of uh, dig deeper into each one. So I don't know, yeah. where do you want to start? So just to list off the seven sacraments, because people might be like, oh, there's seven? I thought there were only two or, you know, just the one, you know. Um, so we have seven sacraments. The first three are called sacraments of initiation, baptism, confirmation, and the Eucharist. The second two are sacraments of healing. You have confession or reconciliation, and then you also have the anointing of the sick. And then the last two sacraments are sacraments of service or vocation, which is the sacrament of uh, holy orders, uh, bishops, priests, and deacons. And then you have the sacrament of matrimony or marriage. So those are the seven sacraments. I think um, baptism, most people are familiar with. You die with Christ, you're raised, raised with Christ. It happens with water and the spirit. You must be born of water and the spirit, Jesus says, or else you can't enter the kingdom of God. So he's very sacramental in the gospel of John, in John 3, 5. You must be born of water and the spirit. So it's done in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and with water. And in the sacrament of baptism, all your sins are forgiven. So um, both original sin so that original sin that wasn't just inherited from Adam and Eve from the fall is now um, healed. 
And then any personal sins, if you're an adult and have committed any sins, those are also washed away because you are fully participating in the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ in that you're given new life. You're given the gift of the Holy Spirit. In fact, the Holy Trinity comes and dwells in you as he promised in, in the gospel of John as well. And so you begin your life. Uh, perhaps the best way uh, to explain this, and actually the back cover of my book is an illustration of the Israelites. Actually, this is the church, but the Israelites going through the waters of the Red Sea. And so I love this to describe to people how the sacramental life is also very much rooted in the scriptures and it's, uh, and, and it's, it's part of the salvation process. So the Israelites, they were saved from their enemy, the Egyptians, through the waters of the Red Sea. So it swallowed up the enemies and they were set free. They were then on their journey to the promised land, but they hadn't made it to the promised land yet. So they hadn't quite reached the fullness of their salvation. Just as when we're baptized, we're saved from the enemies of our soul, from Satan and the demons and all of that. But now we're on a journey in this wilderness on our way to the promised land of heaven. In the wilderness, the Israelites are, are fed with the law of God, just as we're fed with the word of God, the, <clears throat> the law of the gospel. And they were also fed with the manna from heaven. And we're fed with the new manna from heaven, the Eucharist. And that helps us on our journey towards the promised land. Um, the sacrament of confirmation is probably the most misunderstood of the sacraments. And that's really a powerful sacrament. It completes your baptism. So it's this, you receive the Holy Spirit in baptism. But there's a, a sense in which you need an activation. You need some stirring of the spirit so that all the graces you receive in, in baptism don't lie dormant, but that they get stirred up. You get transfigured even more. You get more closely configured to Christ and his mission. And so it's your participation in Pentecost. And, and that's where the Holy Spirit came in you in baptism and comes upon you in confirmation. So I, in my book, I compare it to um, like stirring up a glass of milk. So let's say you have a glass of white milk and you pour some chocolate syrup in it. Well, this is like the Holy Spirit pouring into you in baptism. And then what, what, but what do you have right away? You just, it sinks to the bottom. The chocolate syrup sinks to the bottom. And so it's not quite yet chocolate milk. It's not visibly changed, really. Um, something's different. Um, but what you need is you need to take a spoon and stir it all up. And then boom, it gets transformed into chocolate milk. And it's visibly different to everyone too. It's like, wow, this is, this is not just ordinary milk anymore. And so that's what happens in confirmation. God uh, now takes a spoon and stirs it all up so that <laughs> you get to be on fire with the same mission, that missionary zeal of Christ to bring the gospel to the nations. And then the last sacrament of initiation, then we can talk about this uh, before getting to the other ones, is the Eucharist, which is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ given to us under the appearance of bread and wine. This happened for the first time at the last supper where Jesus says, this is my body given for you. This is the blood of the new covenant given for you. And so what the sacrament is, is it makes present Christ himself. And especially what we call the Paschal mystery, the Passover mystery of the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so just as the ancient Israelites were saved from the Egyptians, through the blood of the lamb. They had to sacrifice the lamb, but then they had to eat the lamb to then enter into that sacrificial, um, the sacrifice. And then they were saved from the Egyptians when the angel of death passed over and killed all the firstborn. 
Um, and so we also, we get to partake of the body of Christ. So the new lamb of God is slain on the cross and we partake of that slain lamb through the Eucharist, which fortunately he rose from the dead. So it's his resurrected body, which is why we're not cannibals. Um, so we're not just partaking of dead flesh and we're not partaking and we're not killing Jesus. Um, we are actually receiving his resurrected body's glorified body so that we're, instead of being cannibals and eating human flesh, we're actually being divinized. We're being participants in the divine nature of God, which is what Peter talks about in Second uh, Peter, that you may become partakers of the divine nature. And so once you receive the Eucharist, which is valid under apostolic succession, which is something I talk about in the book too, because no man-made power can make the Eucharist the Eucharist. The power of the Holy Spirit has to do that. And God gave that power through Jesus Christ to the apostles at the Last Supper when he said, do this in memory of me. Set them up as the new priests of the new covenant. And so we receive this Eucharist in the Catholic Church. And of course, the Orthodox Church also has valid sacraments. Um, and so that would be the full initiation that when you're in communion with Peter, especially, then you're fully initiated into the Catholic Church. And so you've received baptism, confirmation in the Eucharist. You are in that full communion, which is what my hope is for all of our Protestant brothers and sisters and everyone to come into full communion so that you can also partake of uh, the Eucharist, Jesus Christ himself. <laughs> Fantastic. Listen, I want to back up, you know, I want to unpack this a little bit more here. I want to start with baptism because what I, what I explain when I teach this uh, at RCAA, which is the kind of the, the, the class for you know, adult Christians or adult non-Catholics to become Catholic, mm -hmm. you, you unpack all these sacraments. And I make the joke that uh, baptism is the one um, sacrament that you could see even in non-Catholic churches happen because if you baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that's a valid baptism even in non-Catholic Christian churches right. because what the Catholic Church believes happens there. And this idea that, that you, are, you are changed, you are changed in a way that can't be unchanged mm -hmm. if you're baptized in that formula. And I think that's just so beautiful. And that just shows the level of, of seriousness, I think, that the Catholic Church takes in Christ's words in instituting baptism and in the idea of what happens there. I think it's so profound. So could you unpack a little bit, unpack the idea of what happens at baptism to, the, uh, to a believer? Yeah. Um, so I just actually want to read this um, paragraph from my book on baptism to my daughter because I talk about that changed identity, that we are new creations in Christ now. And so I say to my daughter, I, my fictional daughter, once again, I say, pure, spotless, clean, lovely, beautiful. This is you. This is your identity in Christ. You have become one with God. For the promise of Jesus Christ has now become your own, and we will come and make our home with you. The Father himself loves you, and together with Jesus Christ, his beloved Son, and the Holy Spirit, he has chosen to dwell in you. You are forever marked as a child of God. Never forget this, my daughter. And so I think that's kind of summarizes that, yeah, your old self is dead. It's buried. It's, it's destroyed. Um, we do still have something called concupiscence, that inclination to sin. So that's something that remains that we have to fight against. We call it our flesh, right? We have to fight against the flesh. But your identity, you are no longer um, a sinner in your identity. You are no longer um, just a slave to sin, as Paul says. You are a slave now to righteousness. That doesn't mean you won't sin. That doesn't mean you won't stumble and fall. And there's other sacraments that will help you remedy that <laughs> later on, confession namely. But you are, in your identity, you are a daughter or you are a son of God. You are sons in the son, 
as August, St. Augustine would say. And so you are a child of God. So the inheritance given to Christ is now given to you. And so this is a beautiful reality. You are not, as Luther would say, a pile of dung covered in the white snow of Christ. No, you are now Christ's righteousness. You are now a son and daughter of the king. You are ruling and reigning with Christ. And that changes everything when you can view yourself in that, that, that lens of that we are priest, prophet, and king. That is our identity in our baptism that's given to us. And we are changed. We are not slaves of sin. We're slaves of God. We're friends of God. And that's, uh, that, that changes everything. Yeah, I think it's beautiful that the Catholic Church says, okay, if you were baptized, we, we can't do it again because right. you, that change has been made. You are that thing now. So it'd be, it'd be a farce to say we'll baptize you again and it'll do anything because it, it won't. And so instead they kind of say, okay, if you were baptized in this formula in a non-Catholic Christian denomination and Protestant church, yeah, like that stuck. You are that, whether you knew yeah. that or not, right? Uh, that right. that thing stuck, that thing, you are changed, right? Like uh, no matter what, like if you've been adopted into someone's family and then, I mean, you can't get readopted. You're, you're part of the family. Like you're, you're just part of it. And so maybe you didn't realize that. And so now it's time to recognize that and then also strengthen that bond through confirmation. But you have the Holy Spirit. And that's something that I think, is so beautiful that is very uh, much a uh, urgency for ecumenism. So like we know that our Protestant brothers and sisters, even if they don't understand it fully, like I I knew that I had been changed um, and that I had a relationship with God, that I had the Holy spirit. Right. And that's a great source of commonality, our common baptism. We can just dive into that identity together as Christians, as fellow sons and daughters of God and push each other towards holiness to more intimacy with Christ. Um, And so that's a beautiful thing to rejoice with all of our Protestant brothers and sisters and say, hey, you have the Holy Spirit as well. Let's rejoice (laughs) in that. Let's pray together, you know? Absolutely. Let's unpack the Eucharist a little bit because, I mean, this, as you said before, is kind of the source and summit of all of the sacraments. I mean, we think of seven sacraments as what seven is kind of an an, an equal playing field, but really it's not. Really, this is the, the thing that all other sacraments are pointing to, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's Jesus Christ himself. So the other sacraments have the power of Christ, but the Eucharist is Christ. <laughs> so that's amazing. I mean, if you just take one minute to just contemplate, wait, wait, wait that's Jesus Christ? And listen, everyone, only the eyes of faith can see that. And so we don't know that by our senses, Um, faith tells us though, Jesus himself says, this is my body. So it becomes his body. And so Jesus even says like, in order to enter the kingdom of God, you need to become like children. Do we really believe like a child? Uh, what Jesus says is true that his word actually changes things. You know, when Jesus or when, um, God said in the beginning, let there be light, there was light. When he says, this is my body, it is his body. And so upon his authority, even though our eyes perceive bread, even though our taste buds taste bread, we know by faith, no, 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 this is Jesus. And so, or this, is, and, and this is God in the flesh. And so it would be just as scandalous. Let's say you see the Blessed Mother. Let's say you live uh, 2,000 years ago and you see the Blessed Mother with St. Joseph holding the child Jesus. Let's say you're one of the shepherds and you come and you visit this child and you hold this child in your hand. What your eyes see is just a child, a human being. That's what you see. But the eyes of faith, that gift of faith that was given to the shepherds, that was given to Simeon in the temple, 
says, no, 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 this isn't just a child. This isn't just, this isn't even just the Messiah. This is God in the flesh. This is true God from true God. You know, like this is God in the flesh. Like that is the same faith that's required to believe in the incarnation is the same faith that's required to believe in the Eucharist. It's the same faith, which is why it makes sense that this, it would, that God wants us to exercise that faith, which is more precious than gold that perishes. You know, so the Eucharist is that source of, of the Christian life because it's grace himself. It's Jesus himself. We can do, apart from Christ, you can do nothing, which is why Jesus himself says in John 6, that unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up in the last day. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. And so that's the goal is abiding in Christ because apart from him, we can do nothing. So we constantly need to be nourished with the life of Christ, strengthened by his life. So he's the source of our Christian life, but he's also the summit of our Christian life because the end goal is intimate union with God through Jesus Christ. And that's what we get to participate in even now of Christ's resurrected body, which is also the pledge of future glory. So we're hoping to reach that resurrection and already we get to partake of that. So it's like forcing us, it's drawing us to that resurrection reality that we will one day know fully. Um, And so that is why it's the source and the summit of the Christian life is because we're talking about Jesus Christ himself given to us. (laughs) Preach it. (laughs) <laughs> I love it. I'm getting a little preachy. I'm sorry, Keith. I love it. No, I and I resonate with everything you're saying here. I mean, it's such a it's it's so true. And gee whiz, discovering discovering what the Catholic Church teaches about the Eucharist, I'm sure for you, just just blew my mind. There's no other way of putting it. Just completely floored me to realize that 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 Christ didn't leave us. He didn't give us the Holy mm. Spirit and disappear. And of course, he's in heaven. He's everywhere. We we believe these things as as evangelicals. We were God was not this this wizard behind the curtain doing things. We knew he was everywhere and in everything and we, and present to us. But the fact that he was even more present in the Eucharist and that really, mm-hmm. like he was literally right there on the altar. I could go to adoration and I could kneel before the Blessed Sacrament and and worship Christ in all but appearance in the same way that he was on earth. Like you said, the, I mean, the example of, of the incarnation in the, in the child of Jesus is a fantastic example. It's, it was amazing. It, it completely blew my mind. And once I put those pieces together, I remember thinking, you know, well, where else can I go but become Catholic? It's, I, I have to become Catholic. If yeah. this is what Catholics are doing, if this is what they're up to on a Sunday morning or, or, or weekly, week, every day of the week at, at a weekly mass, a weekday mm-hmm. mass, I mean, I had to get on that train, right? <laughs> right. I mean, that's the thing is all the graces we received as Protestants, which are many, especially through baptism, are pointing to us to the Eucharist. I wanted more intimacy with Christ. So when I found out it was possible, I wanted that. <laughs> and that's the invitation. That's good news. That's the gospel. Um, and so, yeah, that, that the invitation is out there. And I think one, one cool experience I had earlier this year is I went to a Byzantine Rite um, Catholic church. And at the very end of the liturgy, after receiving the Eucharist, we processed up again and kissed the crucifix that the priest held out for us. And he would say, as we kissed the crucifix, he would say, Christ is among us. Christ is among us. Christ is among us. And it was just like, whoa, that's so <laughs> true. Like, and so, and then, and then you leave and, and that's how you leave the mat or the, yeah, the mass, you leave the liturgy 
just with the crisis among us, crisis among us, and he's among us in the Eucharist and among our brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. He's among us through the poor. He says, when I was hungry, you fed me, you know? And so it, it makes us even more aware of where we can see Christ in other places. And, and, and so it allows us to encounter him everywhere in our lives in a more tangible way. Of course, we always knew he was everywhere before, but now it's like, oh, he's incarnationally present. And he wants to be incarnationally present also through us. And so he fills us with his presence so he can do that. <laughs> Very well said. Let's unpack the, the two sacraments of, of healing. Because, yes. and I'm, you know, I could do a whole episode, hours and hours on confession, because as you know, as a convert, this is a wild experience to, to go through, having been uh, yeah. a devout, you know, honest and earnest evangelical. To receive forgiveness in the way that reconciliation presents it to us is completely different and completely, I don't want to say mind-blowing again, but it really is this whole mind-blowing experience. Can mm-hmm. we unpack those two sacraments? Yeah, so, and just a shameless plug here, uh, on my podcast, I actually do an episode for each of the sacraments following my book. So if you do want more on this, uh, there's whole episodes dedicated to each of the sacraments. All right, shameless plug done. Uh, so the sacrament of confession, let's start with the, the big one there first. Um, you know, I, I, once again, there's this false dichotomy between priesthood and Jesus. There's a dichotomy or there's like a separation that's created in the, in the evangelical world between Jesus and the church. And that ought not to be so. Um, Christ himself is present through the priest in each of the sacraments. And so, you know, I think about it in terms of this. Let's say you were alive once again, 2000 years ago. And of course you can confess your sins just in your private prayer time to God and ask for his forgiveness. Or let's say you hear about this Jesus of Nazareth character 30 miles away in Galilee doing these healings. And you even hear rumors that he forgave a paralytic of his sins and then raised him, you know, and like healed him. And so you have a choice. You can, you can pray to God and ask for forgiveness in your private prayer, or you can go see Jesus and talk to him directly and hear him say, I absolve you of your sins. I forgive you. Which one would you do? Well, I think you would probably, well, you'd probably do both. Honestly, you'd probably ask God for forgiveness and then be like, but I'm going to go see you also through your son, Jesus. Uh, <laughs> um, and, and that's what we do as Catholics, right? Immediately after we sin, we ought to confess and pray and ask for forgiveness but then immediately we want to go to confession because we want to go encounter and we need that encounter. It's not like God needs that, but we need that because once again, we're physical and spiritual beings. So we need to hear the audible voice of God through the lips of the priest saying, I absolve you of your sins. And that's why we're attracted to Jesus. That's why it'd be attractive to like, I want to go interact with Jesus and like hear him say it because I need to hear it. Um, and so that's one way to explain why uh, confession is so necessary for us. And then also Jesus himself says it's necessary and and gives the apostles power to forgive sins. In John chapter 20, he says to the apostles, whoever sins you forgive, I forgive. Whoever sins you retain, I retain. So he gave the power of binding and loosing to the apostles, which then got transferred to their successors, which is now made present to us in the bishops and the priests in union with their bishop in the Catholic church. And so, that's why it's important that they have been given that power because they're sharing in that anointing of Christ. And, and so it's not this false dichotomy between Christ and the priest. It's no Christ is present in the priest through the sacrament. 
that's not to say every word that the priest says to you in the confession is from God, because he could be speaking flawed. Um, he could be giving you bad advice. But in the absolution, in the prayer of absolution, that's Christ speaking to you. I absolve you of your sins. And you need to be reconciled to the church as well. So, it's, and, and he's coming on behalf of Christ and on behalf of the church to reconcile you to the church and to God. Um, and that's why it's important as well. And that's the same thing with the Eucharist. I mean, it, so I, I was I was amazed to discover that, well, to realize that the words that the priest is speaking during the Eucharist, during the consecration, are the words of Christ. All the priest is doing yes. is speaking the words that Christ spoke. It's not as if the priest has some kind of magical power to turn this into the, the, bo- the blood, body, and divinity, and soul of, of Jesus. It was Christ's Christ's words, and the same way in in confession, reconciliation, it's 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 the priest speaking Christ's words again, being Christ, making Christ present to the penitent in in confession, which is the amazing thing. It's not the priest really doing anything. The priest is there as a as a vessel and a vehicle of God's grace, but it's Christ acting through them. Christ being made present because we are, as you say, tangible people who thrive in that experience versus trying to feel forgiven, just kind of praying to God in the abstract, right? Yes, exactly. And um, and like I say, so I think the one word to describe the Catholic theology that I want to write another book on on that is just the word participation, because everything can kind of be explained through that word. Our role and priest's role, the church's role, it's a participation in Jesus Christ. And, and Christ is, you know, St. Augustine called it the total Christ, Christus totus, head and body. So we have this artificial separation of the body from the head. Ought not to be so. They're connected. So the church and Christ are one. Yes, they're distinct, but they're one. And so to reject the church is to reject Jesus. You know, so to accept the church is to accept Jesus. So it's, and they go hand in hand. It's like the two becoming one in marriage. They're, they're still distinctly persons, right? So like you have the husband who's his own man, the wife who's her own woman, but their two have become one. So to dishonor the wife is to dishonor the husband, to dishonor the husband, to dishonor the wife. And so the two become one. And this oneness is most manifest, of course, in their conjugal union. And the church is most manifest in the sacrament of the Eucharist. The two are becoming one flesh. And so to reject you, Keith, is to reject Christ. To reject the poor is to reject, to reject Christ. I mean, we're part, we are the body of Christ. And so this is an amazing thing. And, and it's this mystery of participation. And so the, the other sacrament of healing is the sacrament of the anointing of the sick. So not only are the priests called to participate in the, uh, sal- um, the soul healing, but also physical healing. Um, which also is encompasses the forgiveness of sins, the sacrament of the anointing. But Jesus went around healing people. And he actually, um, the Holy Spirit inspired James to write the book of James. And he talks about the elders of the church anointing with oil when someone is sick and praying for forgiveness that they may be healed. Well, those elders or presbyters, which is where we get the word priest from, these priests are commissioned to do that. And, and, he says over and over again to the apostles to heal the sick. And this is a way by which a practical, concrete way where the church lives out that vocation of healing. And so if you're sick, um, gravely ill, you can receive that sacrament, whatever age. You don't just have to be on your deathbed. If you're really ill to receive that sacrament, it's that strengthening so that either you'll be healed or you'll have an extra strengthening to offer your suffering and union with Christ's suffering 
for the salvation of the world. Either way you win, you're either going to get intimacy with God through being healed and rejoice in that, or you're going to gain intimacy with him by suffering with him. And and you can rejoice in that as well. <laughs> this has been fantastic. And I know we're out of time. There's two more. Your listeners have to go listen to your podcast to unpack those two. So you can you can plug that again. But this has been fabulous discussion. Yes. I mean, so much fun. So definitely going to have to have you back. Lord willing and, and you willing as well. Uh, yes. Where can listeners go in the meantime to read these books, to hear your podcast? Is there a place you can point them to to find all these things and to pick up those last two sacraments that we didn't have time for today? Yes. Yes. The two sacraments that um, you can check out on my podcast, Holy Orders and uh, Matrimony. Those are the last two. And so, yeah, so I have a website, polycarpsparadigm.com that has most of my podcast episodes and some of my books, <laughs> I need to update that a little bit. So polycarpsparadigm.com, um, you can look up my podcast on any platform, really. It's on Spotify, it's on Apple, um, it's on most most things. And then um, amazon.com is where you can get my books. And so Thoughts of a Changed Mind, Thoughts of a Sacramental Mind, and my new book coming out uh, November 22nd is called Visible Unity, A Calling of Christ for the Church. And I'm so excited about that one as well. It's kind of the culmination of all these thoughts uh, and why I'm so passionate about drawing all people in the full community of the Catholic church and why that's so important. And this is like explaining that. And it's not written like letters from a father to a son. Uh, that would be cool, but it is just, it's actually my thesis that I did for Holy Apostles um, to graduate. And so it's very much a lot of church fathers are cited, a lot of catechism cited, a lot of scripture there. And it's like, basically, this is why this is the big why. And so I'm excited about that. And so everything can be found on amazon.com or polycarpsparadigm.com and then just search for the podcast on different platforms. <laughs> Sounds fantastic. And I can't wait for that book and to have you back again. Yes. <laughs> in the meantime, good. In the meantime, I want to say God bless you. God bless the fantastic work you are doing for the church. And uh, thanks so much for being here this week. Thank you. Appreciate it. Awesome. Take care. Thank you, friend, for tuning in again to the Cordial Catholic. <laughs> tuning in. <laughs> Thanks for listening. TheCordialCatholic.com is my website. I'm at Cordial Catholic on Twitter, The Cordial Catholic on Facebook. And check the show notes for this show in your podcasting app to links for links to Eric's fine website and his books and his podcast, Polycarp's Paradigm, and all the things that he's doing, including links to his new book talking about church unity. I will definitely have him back again at least twice more to this podcast to talk about those things, his conversion story and his fantastic new book. He's a great guest, and this conversation was cut a little short, so we didn't even really finish the sacrament, so I have him back four times, I guess. <laughs> finish this conversation and for three more after that. It's great, guys. Hope you enjoyed it. CordialCatholic at gmail.com. Let me know what you thought about this show if you liked it. Uh, give me some feedback. I'd love to hear who you are, where you're listening from, and why oh why you're listening. I'll be back to all those emails that I can as soon as I can, and I appreciate all of them, so thank you. Please follow or subscribe to. Please like and rate and review this podcast if you can. Please tell a friend. 
Those reviews, those star reviews, those written reviews help to push this podcast out to new people and encourage new listeners. And that really is the mission, the mission that underpins this whole podcast to spread this amazing Catholic faith. Patreon.com slash Cordial Catholic to support the show financially or paypal.me slash Cordial Catholic. Thanks for listening, guys. Thanks for praying for me. I'm praying for you, and I'll see you again next week. Please take care, and God bless. This show is brought to you in a special way by our co-producer patrons over at patreon.com slash cordialcathy. A special thanks to Ellie and Tom, Kelvin and Susan, Stephen, Suzanne and Victor, Phil, Noah, Nicole, Michelle, Jordan, John, James, Gina, and Aram for your special support at the co-producer tier and making this thing possible. You guys are fantastic. God bless and thanks for your support.